Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I medicated me. I'm still not always sure whether I exist or what being a person even really is. But I figured out a long time ago that being alive is beautiful. Hi, everyone. How you doing? Long time no talk. It's been a few weeks. I'm having fun with this different format. You know, um, you know that saying, I'd have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. It's like that. It takes a lot longer to make something shorter, especially if it involves research and such. But, um, well, I love it. And it feels more important. Or something important to me, at least. I don't know. I just, yeah, important. Uh, I still do wish to ramble on and on from time to time and hopefully continue to engender a sense of validation for your own good, bad brain experiences by oversharing my own good, bad brains mental stuff. But for now, I'd like to lean into this. So. Some real bad shootings happened recently. They happen all the time in America. So there's a good chance you will come across this episode months or years from now when I am posting it in the month of August 2019, and it will still apply because the situation indeed seems to go on and on and on, and we all just accept it as the new normal, and the same arguments continue to be made, and nothing changes, and it's awful. Um, this time around, something really bothered me, really struck me, and I felt like no one was challenging it effectively. Whenever a mass shooting happens, a favorite talking point, especially of pro-gun people, is that the root cause is mental illness. It is hard for more left-minded people who tend to be, you know, interested in helping people with that sort of thing. It's hard for them to disagree with this because... As you all know, mental illness is a problem, and it does seem like you'd have to have one to hurt a lot of people when you hear it, 
You know, like it hits your ear like, yes, that makes sense. Crazy people doing crazy shit. But and, you know, not to be all like woke police about ableist language and whatnot. I love and do not want to surrender the usage of terms like crazy or mental and such to define my experiences or those of others. I just love hyperbole and shorthand bombast way too much. But uh, this time around, when I heard everyone especially on the blood-soaked red side of American politics, who currently holds the White House, seemingly gaining a sudden compassion for mental health and interest in focusing in on it as a, a root cause of violence. Well, well, you know the gif? And yeah, gif. I don't care if the creator said it's gif. You don't say graphics interface format, whatever. But you know the gif of that super blondy white guy doing the wide-eyed blinking incredulity face that's like, hmm, you know, hmm, interesting. That's me. That's who I was. <laughs> sudden. Mental illness is causing this. Okay. You suddenly think we need to care for people's mental health to stop mass shootings. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Right, because mentally ill people are dangerous to the people around them and likely to do mass shootings. See, because I felt like, you know, the only person my mental illness has ever tried to hurt was me. And most other people I know who have mental illness similarly don't seem like dangers to anyone except, sadly, themselves sometimes. That's the tragic reality of having a good, bad brain. It makes your own life a danger to itself. Not that it makes it such for the people around you. The whole point is that your brain lies and tells you you're a burden on your loved ones, on strangers, on society. And now we all just are nodding along going, oh yeah, mental illness, that's the root of these mass shootings. And even all the liberals out there being like, well, it's that and the guns and white supremacist ideology and fascism, but yes, surely it is the mental illness as well. And well, again, not to be woke police about it, but that seems rather stigmatizing to me. It seems to reinforce some stereotypes that I thought might not be supported by things like facts or reality. P.S. If the people you talk to do emphasize that part about bad ideology like white supremacism or fascism as the cause of this violence, then I, you know, I think that's a good, uh, (laughs) I think that's a, that's a real good sign that they're the real ones, but I digress. I digress. Um, The goal of this episode, the way I shaped it in my mind, this good, bad brain, is to give you tools, facts, and thoughts, and things to talk about when you have to have this conversation with someone who will surely come across your path who says, it's a mental health problem. These shootings are caused by crazy people. There's literally no way to stop this because that's what crazy is especially if they're unwilling to look at other very legitimate possible causes and factors contributing to gun violence in the United States of America. Factors and, you know, whatnot that we could maybe change. Okay, so for this discussion of mental illness as it relates to mass shootings, psychology as it relates to guns, I thought I would talk to a professional who... You know, if you're a longtime listener to the pod, you may remember. Uh, I'm talking about Dr. Nicholas Barr. Dr. Nick. You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Nicholas Barr One. 
he has a PhD in social work and is about to start a position as an assistant professor in the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in their school of social work. He's also someone I have trained combat sports with, and as he mentions here, eventually, he owns at least one gun, so we could consider him someone who, to a good degree, I think, uh, we could call balanced, politically speaking, as it relates to this issue. Yeah? Okay. Um, content and trigger warnings for this one. There are a ton. Um, I know I haven't always been great about that in the past. Mostly, honestly, it's like an ADHD thing. I just can't keep track of stuff. So I'm just going to say, I don't know. I I literally Googled like lists of types of content trigger warnings. And I I don't know. Then there was one that it said in there called a blanket warning. And I'm just going to say this one gets a blanket warning. All right. Um, Anything. I mean, we talk about violence, gun violence, political violence perpetrated by the state, uh, a lot of mental illness stuff, uh, suicide. We discuss uh, suicide as well in this episode. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot of things. So if it feels like this is too dark or overwhelming or politically charged or whatever in our in our already overwhelming hell world, please do shut the thing off. Throw your phone into the sea. Retire to a pleasant cottage somewhere which might have tea and coffee waiting for you. Maybe there's a sound bath hatha yoga session about to happen. Maybe there's a sandwich there. Just, you know, be good to you. Okay. Without further ado, Dr. Nick, does having a mental illness make me more likely to do violence? Is the issue of mass shootings a mental illness problem? I think it, there's so many problems embedded in that claim that we hear, right? That it's a it's a mental illness problem. I mean, there's just there's so many problems with the statement, and there's so much embedded misunderstanding that it's actually difficult to unpack. So, you know, one thing I th- it's hard to even know where to start, but I yeah. think. One thing is that people need to define what they mean by mental illness. Do they mean a DSM diagnosis? Because that's what, you know, a lot of people mean. Right. That's what that's what the kind of psychological and medical establishment means when they talk about mental illness. So do you mean a diagnosis? Okay. Yeah, that's kind of one yes no tree, right? If you don't mean that, then I don't really know what people are talking about. That then I think they they ought to just step back from entering into the discussion because on what basis then are they talking about someone having a mental illness? They ought to just use other categories and other better descriptors instead yeah. of lazily using that one if they don't intend to use it the way that the field uses it. And then the second one is like, okay, let's say they say, yes, okay, I do mean DSM diagnosis. Well, the research evidence there is overwhelming that people with mental illnesses are no more likely to commit violence than someone without a mental illness. And in many cases, they're less likely to commit violence than someone without a mental illness. Boom. There it is. Okay. I'll play it again. The research evidence there is overwhelming that people with mental illnesses are no more likely to commit violence than someone without a mental illness. And in many cases, they're less likely to commit violence than someone without a mental illness. Okay. Okay. I really want to take a little extra time about this thing that he's saying here. I want to repeat this concept because I don't think that I fully got it at first. So here for me, if no one else. Uh, mental illness, quote unquote, is not a diagnosis, okay? 
bipolar or depression or ADHD or PTSD or caffeine withdrawal, which, yes, is an actual DSM-5 diagnosable mental affliction, those are mental illnesses. Those are actual diagnosable things. Mental illness is nothing but a conveniently generic term you can put anything you don't like into. This is an important distinction because just saying, quote, mental illness did it is not an answer. And gun people do tend to be very pedantic. So, like, I mean, seriously, they will get upset with you about how clearly that's not an AR-15. That's an AK-47 that was used to kill all those people. And stop calling it a machine gun. It's a semi-automatic. One trigger pull, one round. Gosh, golly, how can all these liberals try to talk about guns when they don't even know how they work? <laughs> so, please, feel free to say, okay, well, you're all about mental health control. Get it? Like gun control. You're all about mental health control, so you must be very informed about mental health. Please tell me which type of mental illness are you concerned about? Because according to an article published by Harvard Medical School, despite 60% of Americans thinking people with schizophrenia are likely to act violently towards someone else, and 32% thinking someone with major depression is likely to, like Dr. Nick says, the numbers just don't support that. It is interesting, I think, to note uh, some numbers. Here's some numbers for you. In a study put together by the University of Oxford, investigators analyzed data from a Swedish registry of hospital admissions and criminal convictions. Uh, and since Sweden tracks all of their citizens, they were able to do this, to look at how many people uh, with mental illness were convicted of violent crimes versus the general population over a 30-year period. So pretty good sample size. Um Interestingly, they also tracked the percentage of people convicted of violent crimes who had a mental illness that was dual diagnosed with a substance abuse disorder. And in the case of dual diagnosis, they did see numbers, uh, rates, instances of violence skyrocket. Uh, for instance, um, with schizophrenia, uh, controls over that study uh, suggested that 5.1% of the population in, in Sweden um, over this 30-year period had been convicted of at least one violent crime, uh, with a slight jump to 8.5% for people with schizophrenia. And there was a huge jump to 27.6% uh, with a dual diagnosis, that if you had schizophrenia and uh, substance abuse disorder, you were there was a 27.6% chance that over this 30-year period you would be convicted of, of, of uh, violent crime. In a separate study uh, with a slightly shorter sample size, um, just in terms of years, a year, I think it was two different years difference, um, they did the same uh, study of data uh, for people with bipolar disorder. Uh, and they found in that one uh, the violent crime rate for the general population to be 3.4%. Versus bipolar folks uh, who were found to be violent at a rate of a slightly higher 4.9%. However, bipolar, when it was linked with the substance abuse disorder, made the numbers again jump very high to 21.3% of that population being convicted of at least one violent crime. So, uh, I stopped to say here, uh, hopefully this puts a little thought in your brain that we will revisit uh, later, 
that there are factors that we could look to as predictors, perhaps, of uh, potentiality for violent behavior. Um, Even in the case of this dual diagnosis, we're still looking at a quarter of those people, which is a huge percentage, but barely, barely a shift in percentage. I mean, we're talking in the one study, three, and the other study, a one and a half percent. So nothing particularly significant. And again, according to Nick and the other studies, this is these are just two studies in Sweden. I don't know. But in those cases, folks with mental illness, these specific ones, schizophrenia and, and bipolar, which are ones that I think people would probably, in the uh, in the general stigmatizing thoughts about mental illness, would probably put in the category of ones that we would consider to be people to be wary of for violence. These these uh, scary, crazy, mentally ill people. Um they just aren't. They're just not more likely than quote-unquote normals, you know? They're just not. Neurotypical people and the people with mental illness are not. But again, I want to put this thought in your head that there are other things. Like in this case, combining that with the substance abuse disorder did contribute. Um, However, even that in this study, they said there were a lot of other factors to consider in these people often. That if you had a substance abuse disorder and you had a mental health disorder, there were other factors to look to that we know to be causes of violent behavior. And um, anyway, I just want to put that seed in your head. I promise we're going to revisit that thought uh, a little bit. So from there, uh, back to Dr. Nick, let's go on with uh, this idea uh, of this discussion regarding that if we do make a specific disease diagnosis does is there a disease not just blanket mental illness but if we say you have this disease is there anything about those people with a specific disease being more violent than people without okay take it away dr nick then if you get into things like specific diagnoses like you know major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder uh borderline personality disorder People sometimes in certain segments of the population, PTSD, although it's very hard to separate that from depression, and I'm thinking about like military veterans, for example, it's very hard to separate depression from PTSD. Um, But some of those diagnoses are associated with higher risk for suicide. So, Mm. you know, that's... That's and that's the most most of the gun violence in the country is suicide. So yeah. that's a separate claim, and there is truth to that claim. That you know, if you have major depressive disorder, or you're in a major depressive episode, or you have bipolar disorder, or you have borderline personality disorder, or even uh, schizophrenia, that those disorders are associated with a higher risk for suicide. For suicide, um, so self harming. For, for yeah, for for self harm behavior and for suicide. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the, you know, yeah. those are kind of the two, I think, most critical points. According to the CDC, it is a true fact that there are more gun deaths by suicide in America than homicides in total. There are 47,173 suicides in a year here, 23,854 by firearm, the most common way to kill oneself, and 19,510 homicides. 75% of those homicides were by gun. I would never try to argue that less access to guns would mean people would just stop killing themselves. Um, we know how our good, bad brains work, and they can be quite bad. 
But you have to be a real fucking asshole to try and pretend guns don't make it a lot easier. That they don't make a momentary and very misguided message from a brain in a bad place a lot fucking easier to fulfill. I quote the Harvard School of Public Health's David Hemingway when I say, quote, Studies show that most attempters act on impulse in moments of panic or despair. Once the acute feelings ease, 90% do not go on to die by suicide. As the old saying goes, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And that may seem glib, but glib works for me sometimes. And I have thought of that little saying many times in the past when I needed it. Okay, um, I suggest checking out, uh, it's called livethroughthis.org if you would like um, to read through stories from folks who have survived their own suicide attempts, uh, but only if you feel up to it. The stories there are, as you'd imagine, heartbreaking and difficult to read and exceedingly human. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know, yeah, if your brain is telling you to hurt yourself, do not do it, Okay. My brain has told me to do this many times, and I hope if yours ever tries to tell you shit like that again, you say, nice fucking try, dipshit, to your own silly-ass brain, and carry on with your precious and wondrous life, okay? Review your don't kill yourself list, eat something good, whatever you do, I cannot stress this enough, do not kill yourself. Do not kill yourself. That's the official stance of my good bad brain. I'd stand by that. Okay. Back to mental health and whether or not we can blame it for mass shootings. Like, can we just find all the mentally ill people and scoop them up before they go out there and start shooting? Dr. Nick? But then the second is that mental health, like diagnosis is not a predictive science. It's, you don't give someone a diagnosis to to predict unrelated behaviors that aren't associated Mm. with that specific diagnosis. So, you know, giving someone a post hoc diagnosis of mental illness, which is not a real diagnosis, after they've committed a violent atrocity, and then somehow thinking that that post hoc diagnosis should have ha- held some predictive validity, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, it it doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't make temporal sense, and it's. Um, not supported by any of the research can, evidence. Yeah, can you break that down for me a little more? Like the the because I think I know what you mean, but like you know, like what is that? So let's say so it happens. Someone goes, "This person." What do you mean by that? Like temporal? What's the yeah, logic yeah. of it? So or the say, illogic? You know, let's say I Nick Barr. I, I mean, it's God. It's horrible to even think about. Sure. But let's say I commit some act of violence. Yeah. Okay, and then someone says, "Oh, because he committed that act of violence, he must have a mental health problem." Mm-hmm. Right, and then they say, "Well, because he had a mental health problem, we should have known that he would commit that act." Mm. Right? Somehow, someone screwed up for not knowing he could have, he would have committed that act. It's a tautology. It's circular right. logic, right? Because you didn't know right. I had a mental health problem until I committed the act, and then after I committed the act, somehow you should have known that I would have done it based on a diagnosis you didn't give me until after I did it. Right. Right. D- does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, completely. Okay, that didn't make total sense to me, honestly. I was just on the phone and I did that thing where I was like, uh, yeah, 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 completely. You're smart. I want to sound smart too. I don't, yes, of course. Um, so I want to pause on it because I listened to it a lot and it's pretty profound, actually. Um, 
I touched on this a little bit earlier in earlier parts, but whatever, it's here now, let's talk about it. The idea here is that mass shooters could somehow be diagnosed with a mental illness, a mental illness which is expressed by them shooting a lot of people. Like, this is like saying, okay, uh, you are diagnosed with depression or ADHD, like I am, and both of those. And that diagnosis that you get, it's based on behaviors that you've already expressed or I have already expressed in my life, not behaviors I am going to express. You can't say this seems like someone who is going to be unable to get out of bed for inexplicable and debilitating reasons generated by chemicals and hormones producing abnormally in his brain. You can't make that diagnosis of depression until I've been unable to get out of bed. That plus a lot of other factors. I'm obviously not a psychiatrist. And even then, like Nick says, mental health diagnoses are an imprecise science. If you can't diagnose someone with this illness until they've shot a lot of people, it's not really useful to the conversation around causal factors for mass shootings. And we know that the numbers on people with other mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar and depression, they do not support this idea. They are, they are no more likely to commit violence than the general neurotypical population. So we can't just start scooping them up, you know? So as far as this post-act diagnosis, what does it mean? This is what Dr. Nick is saying when he says mental illness is not a diagnosis. So what is it? If you ask me, which I guess you're forced to because this is my podcast and I'm just monologuing here. But if you ask me, it's a conveniently generic umbrella term in which you can put anything you don't like or agree with. Now, I assure you, we will come back to talk about some of the implications of that non-scientific but politically useful diagnosis of generic, quote, mental illness. But for now, I would like to continue listening to Dr. Nick as we discuss possible ways concern for mental wellness could effectively be brought to bear in reducing gun violence or stopping mass shootings before they happen. Because I think I've repeated enough that we can't say current diagnosed, quote, mental illnesses can be tied surely to predicting a behavior of, quote, does mass shootings. Um, Okay, like let's say hypothetically I'm not being disingenuous and I take a hop, skip, and a jump from being pedantic about, well, actually, quote, it's mental illness that causes shootings and having fun being pedantic and pointing out tautology issues in the circular argument. Let's say I behave like a good faith human being and understand mental illness in this context of causing mass shootings to mean... Uh, it's a set of abnormal traits and behaviors that we could identify and diagnose and give a name to, which I am shorthand calling mental illness, that we could utilize to protect and prevent mass shootings. Is there a way to use that idea of, you know, the misnamed mental illness to stop people from killing a lot of people and make us less freaked out about going to public gatherings everywhere in America? Okay. Let me let Dr. Nick introduce you to the concept of characterological traits. I think what we really need to do is examine a separate issue, which is that there are people who may or may not also have a mental illness. They probably have some kind of characterological problems. Um, what would that mean? What does that mean, a characterological Well, that's problem? still something that we're sorting out. I mean, now there, in DSM-4TR, there used to be a whole... Uh, subclassification of disorders called personality disorders, and now that we don't have that anymore. Now there, are, whoa, whoa. you know, so would, would that be like sociopath and stuff like that? 
Yeah, antisocial personality disorder, right. borderline personality disorder. They're all they're kind of going in and out of focus all the time. But but I think when you have interesting, yeah, there there are probably red you know red flags to borrow a term from from the contemporary media right now. Sure. But those things have highly variable intersection with the red flags for mental illness. But if somebody is obsessed with violence and making lists of who they want to target and do it. So, I mean, those are just two examples. Right. I was or off, like perpetrating off, off violence, cuff. right? Like yeah, right, already they have a history of threatening people. I mean, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior to just take like a right. behaviorism trope. So if someone has engaged in threatening or violent behavior before, that's an enormous red flag. You know, that yeah. is a real, that is actually a valuable predictor of their potential behavior, not a diagnosis of depression or a diagnosis of an adjustment disorder or something like that, which is probably what, you know, most young people have. Uh, a poll actually just came out, um, side note, hi, uh, conducted by the data collection company YouGov. Uh, that included answers from 1,254 adult Americans, which said 22% of millennial respondents said they have zero friends. Zero friends. So when Dr. Nick says probably most young people have, I don't think he's being particularly glib or hyperbolic. He goes on to say this about the ethics of giving uh, kids serious disorder diagnoses. You're really not supposed to be giving out long-term, long-lasting diagnoses before people are adults. I mean, some of the DSM di- diagnoses, you're actually not supposed to do that. So Interesting. I think what this speaks to is the fact that we have to do something much more difficult. I mean, leaving aside regulating firearms more effectively, we have to do something which is more difficult, which is starting to develop... Uh, profiles for behaviors that are predictive of violence. Yeah. And that's that's going to be a little bit different from, you know, how we engage around mental health problems. There'll probably be intersections and like the points of contact may overlap, but I think it's going to be a, a separate uh, enterprise. Mm. And unfortunately, we're now amassing a larger and larger database of these people. Right. So I, I imagine that this is already underway. Oh, I'm sure. I hope. Yes. Unless uh, the NRA and other members of the gun lobby are, say, preventing the CDC from even being allowed to research systemic gun violence in a real way. Um, Yeah, this isn't just some liberal talking point. It's called the Dickey Amendment. And it was part of a 1996 federal omnibus spending bill. If you don't know what an omnibus spending bill is, just picture that meme with the guy slapping the roof of the car, but it's a bill in Congress. And he's saying, you can fit so many bad ways to utilize government money into this thing. And uh, anyway, the Dickey Amendment, named for Jay Dickey, a Republican rep from Arkansas, was lobbied for by the NRA and mandated that, quote, None of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may be used to advocate or promote gun control. Now, this is a bit of a shift in the original use of the bill. Originally, the bill banned them from using funds to even research the issue. Um, And the reason that's important is because the CDC 
doing research into things like um, auto deaths, for instance, which resulted in airbags and seatbelts and whatnot. Um, you know, researching gun violence in an epidemiological way, epidemiology, epidemiological, you get the idea, could find us some things that might, you know, help the gun violence problem, types of regulation or safety features, or I don't know, who knows, but it could do something. Um, in the current iteration of this amendment, the language has been shifted uh, so that, yes, the CDC can use funds to start research. They're just not allowed to use government funds to recommend gun control. <laughs> so, uh... Okay, you know, that's what we'd call an effective ban on trying to fix this problem. Thanks, guys. Okay, um, putting that aside, Dr. Nick said something uh, extremely important next, I think. When you get in a conversation, because I know you will, because I know you are very strong-minded, you have to be to survive with your fucking good, bad brains day-to-day, all its you know, fuck stickery and things that your little gray matter tries to do to you. And because you're good-hearted individuals who, you know, must speak up when speaking up is required, when someone says it's not a gun problem, it's a mental health problem, well, here's another pretty valuable talking point. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Dr. Nate, you know, take over again because he's a doctor. Instead of just saying, oh, it's a mental illness problem, you know, people saying that understand, it seems to me, almost nothing about mental health and mental illness, we should be saying we need to be studying the causes and consequences of violence. And some of those things are situational, some of them are characterological or, or you know, personality dependent, um, but they all intersect with the opportunity to get weapons of violence. I mean, they, they yeah. all intersect with that opportunity. You know, the other thing we never hear is like, Where's the discussion of, you know, trauma and mental health problems right. when we have shootings in Chicago? Young men shooting each other in Chicago absolutely have trauma backgrounds and trauma histories, but they never get the benefit of being diagnosed with me- a mental illness problem, right? Right. I mean, so it's also selective, the populations that these reasons are applied to, and, and that's also racist. And therein lies the fucking rub, doesn't it? FBI uh, statistics, um, well, nobody really, nobody has a real definition for mass shooting. Uh, The FBI defined a mass murderer as someone who shot and killed at least four people, not including his or herself. And so a lot of times when they say mass shooting or pundits or, you know, whoever wants to be making whatever point they're going to make wants to you know, say mass shooting, they'll use that definition. Someone that shoots four or more people and, and that die and, and, you know, not themselves, not including themselves. And so often gun people will try to respond, you know, that actually mass shootings aren't only white guys. It's also lots of people of color as well, black on black crime. You know, then you can say, you know, meaning this, meaning literally this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, meaning uh, these people that shoot each other in Chicago or something like that. Um, gang violence or, or or sometimes it's people who just, like, kill their family members for, you know, whatever reason. I don't know. But different than this epidemic we're trying to figure out of 
someone coming into a place where they don't know anyone and just indiscriminately shooting everyone. You know what I mean? A very different thing we're trying to talk about. So you'll get people who come in and, and try to do this and say, actually, it's all kinds of people that do a mass shooting. Again, using this very flawed definition of just what a mass murder, a mass shooting is, okay, based on this FBI thing. So if somebody says that to you, oh, actually, well, actually, it's all kinds of people, whatever. You can say, damn, good point. I'm sure you agree then. Then what we need is comprehensive economic reform, housing reform, wealth redistribution, and robust work programs for areas destroyed by things like systematic industrial deregulation, the dismantling of unions, trade agreements, exporting manufacturing work to inhumane conditions on other sides of the world, the tech utopia pandering of centrists in both political parties, which has ensured a race to the bottom of wage slavery for, quote, independent contractors, disproportionately punitive drug wars, etc., etc. And then finally, of course, my fine friend who was so concerned with healing the root cause of the mental illness, quote unquote, behind mass shootings, I'm sure you support Medicare for All, which would include and ensure access to a plethora of therapeutic programs available free of charge and all across the nation for folks who want to go Work out their cycles of trauma before they pay them forward in their own lives. No? Oh, weird. So then what could these people mean? Why then, the day after these shootings, when our president, who has clearly made fun of disabled people at rallies before he was even elected, why would he suddenly be concerned with mental health? Why would he say something like, We must reform our mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Oh, involuntary confinement or commitment. We can, you know, involuntary commitment is what he's talking about. Uh, police, yes. Police are certainly the people I trust to decide who's mentally ill or not. Yes, I trust the state to do that. Look, okay, I, uh, I know I'm having some fun with this, getting a little, getting a little, uh, you know, whatever intense about it. I promise I will end this section on something more positive, okay? But I feel like I have to give some historical context for what a state who is demonstrably racist and xenophobic uh, might think mental illness is and the sort of things they do, okay? Like when we look to the establishment, you know, the structures of power and what their ideas about what mental illness is, um, it wasn't until 2013 in the DSM-5 that, quote, gender identity disorder was changed to gender dysphoria, which is a big shift in considering trans people normal and not insane by some state standard definition of mental wellness. You know, because it places the, the stress on the feeling you have of being in the wrong body and that being the problem, not that there's something fucking wrong with you for having the feeling. You know what I mean? 1973 is when the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from the DSM, the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, PS, um, you know, if you don't know what that is. And even then, 
it was only by a 58% majority of voting members. This divide was so strong. I mean, almost half of psychiatrists on this board felt so strongly that homosexuality was still a sin. I I, 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 I mean, mental illness. (laughs) Sorry, theatrical. But seriously, they felt so strongly homosexuality was still a mental illness that they compromised, okay, all of these psychiatrists, and they included, instead of just straight-up homosexuality, SOD, or they called it sexual orientation disturbance in the DSM-2, which meant that you were only mentally ill from having the gay if you felt disturbed by it. Cool, cool, cool. Yes, totally. Coming out of the closet from, you know, what I've uh, observed in my pals and community and the world at large, yeah, it seems totally easy and not conflicted at all for gay people. So that seems like a helpful, clear, you know, I mean, they always have this extreme clarity about it, you know? So totally makes sense to include, yeah, that doesn't pathologize or stigmatize it at all. If you feel any disturbance at your urges and feelings around attraction and gender and whatnot, damn, well, you're probably fucking crazy, according to DSM. Two, anyway, sexual orientation disturbance got replaced again by, quote, ego dystonic homosexuality or EDH in DSM-3, which is like the same thing, just a different name. And that wasn't removed until 1987. So I'm not going to even go into it. I could do this all day, this like pedantic thing. There's a bunch of other stuff about how long it took him to sponsor certain things and make public statements and attitudes, normalizing homosexuality as what it is just normal just part of fucking nature and people and everything and it's fine and go fuck yourself (sighs) all right so not only is the state and the health authorities now they not only are they slow as hell and wrong about what mental illness is sometimes often whatever historically there's a history of the state doing extremely fucked up things to people that they consider mentally ill Over the early 20th century, more than 60,000 people considered mentally ill or mentally deficient were sterilized in accordance with eugenics laws, okay? Fucking eugenics laws. I'll I'll, I'll let you guess the sorts of people who are disproportionately affected by these laws, like in California, where more than 20,000 of these forced sterilizations were carried out. A professor at the University of Michigan... Researching the issue, her name's uh, Alexandra Minister, she found that, quote, those sterilized in state institutions often were young women pronounced promiscuous, the sons and daughters of Mexican, Italian, and Japanese immigrants, frequently with parents too destituted to care for them, and men and women who transgressed sexual norms. And furthermore, quote, During the peak decade of operations from 1935 to 1944, Spanish surnamed patients were 3.5 times more likely to be sterilized than patients in the general institutional population. I won't go into it too much further. I just, I want to mention that, you know, Hitler and the Nazi state did their best to eradicate mental illness in Germany during a similar time period alongside all the other people they didn't like, you know, Jews, gay people, socialists and communists, all kinds of, you know, whatever, whoever they didn't like, uh, of course, among them were psychiatric patients. And it's estimated that between 220,000 and 269,500 individuals with schizophrenia in Germany at that time were sterilized or killed. 
This represents between 73% and 100% of all individuals with schizophrenia who are living in Germany between 1939 and 1945, okay? And I know, I know, I know, I know, I'm dystopian chicken little, okay? I know. But things happen, they've happened before, they happen again, and even if it wasn't going to be something that intense, what am I fucking talking, I'm not making excuses for this, you know? We got to pay attention. What do people mean? I think people use the same words to mean different things. I think well-meaning people might say mental illness, mental wellness, mental health, whatever, and mean something very different from what some other people might mean. So forgive me if when I hear someone who jokes about the shooting of desperate migrants. That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. Only in the panhandle. Forgive me if I don't believe he's suddenly become woke to concepts of intergenerational cycles of trauma and abuse. Or the possibility that somebody afflicted with a totally normal and common chemical deficiency in their brain might pose some kind of danger to their own health when he says... And make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Ugh. Just listen how he says those people. Like, he's not so pissed about it, you know? It's gross. Fucking fuck. Anyway. I told you I'd end this section more positive. So, on the topic of involuntary commitment. Uh, here's me asking Dr. Nick about it. And, and he has some thoughts that, you know, aren't as fucking horrifying as, as, uh, what my, you know, (laughs) awful dystopian thoughts. Okay. Just, just, just be aware. Okay. Just protect yourselves. You beautiful babies out there. Just protect yourselves. Okay. Respect. You're good. You, I want you to just be safe. Let's not, don't let them fucking get away with it. You know, dog whistles. Dr. Nick, please, let's, I'm going to ask you now. Get me out of this thing. Does involuntary commitment exist currently? And Yes. And what is that? Is that effective? So I think these, these laws are different uh, by state. But like in California, someone, like a police officer or a licensed clinical social worker or a licensed psychologist can put you on a 72-hour hold just right there if you Damn. demonstrate that you are... Uh, a, th- a threat to yourself or someone else or that you're grossly disabled, like totally unable to, you know, wash, feed, uh, and take care of yourself. Right. So, you know, you can do that in the office right there. Um, but then I believe it takes like two licensees um, to extend that hold to a week. And then I believe after a week, it goes to three months. Does that help people? In your um, experience, or have you I, have you had experience uh, with with people? Is that like being fifty one fifty'd? Yeah, that's being fifty one fifty'd. I mean, I think in my in my entire career, I have seen one person get fifty one fifty'd, and I think I've heard about like one or two others. Mm-hmm. So it's rare, at least in the places I've worked. Um, yeah, I, I would imagine that that's that data is kept by the state. I certainly hope it is. Sure. Um, but. It, I do think it's value, a valuable tool. I mean, you know, so there are people who come into the office and are acutely suicidal, and I don't think we should let them leave right. and kill themselves, you know? So yeah. 
So, but that's usually what it's for. Very rarely does someone come in and say, I'm going to go shoot, you know, so-and-so they have to tell and say a name, you know, next door now, you know, that <laughs> Got it's, it. it's much more likely that it's a, it's to prevent self-harm yeah. or somebody who is, you know, brought in by police, you know, and they're, yeah, they're grossly disabled. They're maybe acutely psychotic and they're not able to take care of themselves. So yeah, yeah I do think, you know, it's, it ought to be used very rarely because you're taking away someone's self-determination, which is, you know, not something you never want to do. But, but yeah, I do think sometimes you have to do that. Fair enough. Thank you for tamping down uh, my, again, chicken little dystopian visions, even if I don't really think they are, but I feel like I have to say that so I sound sane, quote unquote. Uh, but thank you, Dr. Nick. And yes, uh, of course, the dream of a state that loves its people and cares for their well-being is one that I do indeed dream. Um, so, yeah, that's that. I had two more questions that I wanted to ask Dr. Nick about, which I think might also come up in these hypothetical conversations you will inevitably have about mental illness and its role as the convenient victim of blame in mass shootings for people who don't really want to address the issue. Uh, first up, let me give him a little slam dunk by presenting the real thing that we all know is causing all this violence. Dr. Nick, do video games cause mass shootings? Okay. Here's the quote that I heard from another researcher that I think is the best one. There is as much evidence that bananas cause suicide as there is that video games cause homicides, which is to say there is zero evidence of that. Wow, there, there is funny. there is zero evidence to support that assertion, and every it's been over and over again. It's been written about in the in the popular media that there's no linkage between video games and violence, uh, and people just refuse to accept that. Now, I do mean, you, do look, you like do you have thoughts though? I mean, like I'm not a parent, whatever. But if I were a parent. And then I was like, I found out my kid was like, my sweet boy was like having fun. Yeah, playing some, people yeah, the, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would I, should I be worried about that? Should I be like, oh, they're exploring their Thanatos instincts? Like, what is that? Well, I mean, look, I think, so that, you know, everybody plays video games, just like everybody eats breakfast. It, it would be like trying to, you know, draw a causal link between eating breakfast and committing violence. It's, yeah. it's so ubiquitous that, mm. um, it, you know, it's, I, I think problematic there. I would say though, that I think, um, I, I do think that in, so there's a theory, uh, that I really like, um, it's called the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide sky, uh, Thomas Joyner's theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what it says is that in order to commit suicide, there are three things that motivate people. One is um, they per- they have like a perceived burdensomeness. They feel like they're a burden to people around them. Mm. They have a sense of thwarted belonging, like they you know wanted to be part of something and they can't be. And they also are desensitized to pain and violence because to kill yourself, you know, you have to mm. overcome your instinct to live um, and inflict pain on yourself. And I do think there's probably some way of reformulating that theory to get at. Um, committing violence or mm-hmm. and mass violence in particular. And I think part of it that you would retain, at least that I would, 
is this desensitization to pain and violence. I think there are a lot of ways to desensitize yourself to violence. And, you know, people often say uh, that video games desensitize you to violence. Uh, you know, the, the evidence has not shown that, but I think we probably could ask the questions in some different ways. And, you know, it may be that part of the cocktail of the character of someone who goes out and commits violence is engaging with violent media. That, mm-hmm. that may be, you know, part of that cocktail. But my sense is that there are going to be um, a lot of other more salient factors. You know, people play Call of Duty all over the world and right. we're the only country with these mass killings. So I think there's yeah. probably something else going on. Okay. Speaking of those more salient factors, uh, I know earlier I said that I would share some stuff that I found when I was researching this that seemed to be better predictors of mass violence, or I, well, I shouldn't say mass violence, these are better predictors of violent behavior in individuals. Um, I, I think the research and anything about mass violence is ongoing and would be completely uh, speculation from me and my big, dark, uh, biased imagination. So... Um, in that same uh, Harvard article that did the thing about the studies in Sweden, they listed some of these uh, other factors. These, uh, what, you know, maybe what Nick was referring to as more salient factors. So psychiatrists say uh, things you can look for to maybe predict uh, the possibility or likelihood of an individual being violent. Uh, a history of violence. Uh, individuals who've been arrested or acted violently in the past are more likely than others to become violent again. Much of the research suggests that this factor may be the largest single predictor of future violence. Um, and again, I'm going to present these all just as matters of what these articles said and um, statistics and whatnot. I, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for all that. Not not presenting this as a moral sort of stance. I just. I don't know, I felt like saying that. Okay, uh, substance use. Patients with a dual diagnosis are more likely than patients with a psychiatric disorder alone to become violent. So a comprehensive assessment includes questions about substance use in addition to asking about symptoms of a psychiatric disorder. Um, One theory is that alcohol and drug abuse can trigger violent behavior in people with or without psychiatric disorders because these substances simultaneously impair judgment, change a person's emotional equilibrium, and remove cognitive inhibitions. In people with psychiatric disorders, substance abuse may exacerbate symptoms such as paranoia, grandiosity, or hostility. Patients who abuse drugs or alcohol are also less likely to adhere to treatment for a mental illness, and that can worsen psychiatric symptoms. Another theory, however, is that substance abuse may be masking or entwined with other risk factors for violence. A survey of 1,410 patients with schizophrenia participating in the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness, or CATI for short, uh, that study, Uh, for example, found that substance abuse and dependence increased risk of self-reported violent behavior fourfold. But when the researchers adjusted for other factors, such as psychotic symptoms and conduct disorder during childhood, the impact of substance use was no longer significant. Um, personality disorders are listed here, which include things like borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, conduct disorder, and other personality disorders often, uh, that manifest in aggression or violence. Now I have to say that these things, these ideas of personality disorder have since this, uh, research happened this article, 
been removed. They're not in the DSM. Uh, Dr. Nick pointed that out in my conversation with him. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where those sit right now. I think that has to do with those characterological factors that he was talking about earlier uh, of what a personality disorder is. I think that they, uh, I, I may be wrong about this, but I believe it was just they were not things that you could diagnose from a scientific uh, standpoint, not not something that was, hmm, I guess, precise enough or repeatable enough and too subjective, maybe. Anyway, other uh, things we got here. The nature of uh, patient symptoms, somebody with psychiatric disorder. So patients with uh, paranoid delusions, command hallucinations, and florid psychotic thoughts may be more likely to become violent than other patients. For clinicians, it is important to understand the patient's own perception of psychotic thoughts because this may reveal when a patient may feel compelled to fight back. So that is interesting because that one does sort of get into the realm of like, oh, well, is your mental illness? Are you a crazy person that's making you... Uh, crazier. And I think it's a it's a nuanced thing. Obviously, it's a specific type of mental illness, the type of mental illness that might have uh, psychotic thoughts or, or hallucinations. Um, but that they're saying here, this is, again, these are all things to predict uh, violent behavior. And I think the reason I'm sharing them is just to have things to talk about and also as a kind of tool for yourself. I don't mean it's because uh, self-preservation or something and I'm um, just a paranoid person, but I think these are valuable to to say. You know, Oprah said this thing once that like when people tell you who they are, believe them. And I think on this one in particular, the idea that it's this sort of um, almost like a common sense thing they're trying to say, which is like pay attention to the person in front of you. And if they're having a, a, a state of mind where they think something's going on that isn't, like if you were hallucinating that some creature was attacking you or something or someone was trying to hurt you and they weren't, the hallucination, you, you will, kind of wouldn't be acting crazy. Do you know what I mean? You would be acting logically with the reality you're experiencing. And so the idea is here, pay attention to what someone's going through in front of you. And if they have a, the wrong idea about a situation, it still might not preclude them from getting, you know, scary. Um I think that's important. I just think that's important because the mental illness in that situation wouldn't be their violent reaction. It would be the thing that they think is going on. And I, I think when we talk about these people who are doing some of this mass violence where they put out certain manifestos that have a kind of like logic to them, they're not behaving crazily. They just have bad information that they believe. And just saying that they're crazy makes it very difficult to solve the issue of the bad information that they believe just saying oh they're just crazy is a way to just never have to deal with the bad information you know all right i'm gonna go a few a few more things here that are that are solid apparently predictors or better predictors i should say better predictors what i think as far as i can go of potential uh violence uh behavior from people Age and gender. Young people are more likely than older adults to act violently. In addition, men are more likely than women to act violently. Uh, social stress. People who are poor or homeless or otherwise have a low socioeconomic status are more likely than others to become violent. And again, I really appreciate how this is phrased, social stress. And not for some wokey political correct reason. Truly, the acknowledgement of how stressful it is on a person to be in that sort of situation I think it's wild that our society lets people get in those situations. It is much more likely to put you in a fight or flight sort of state of mind when you are literally 
trying to just survive every day. Social stress. Poor people aren't bad. They're in a truly fucking dire situation sometimes when you're homeless, you know? Social stress. And then also, uh, right on the heels of that, personal stress, crisis, or loss. So they listed things like unemployment, divorce, or separation in the past year increases a patient's risk of violence, they say. People who were victims of violent crime in the past year are also more likely to assault someone. That thing, I said it before, hurt people, hurt people, you know? You can always find that. This is, I, I truly believe the insidious and awful thing about violence or assault or anything like that isn't necessarily, I mean, obviously if somebody dies, it is, but isn't even necessarily the physical thing. If somebody came and just punched you, you'd get over getting punched, but you would be tainted in some way. You would, you would know like this, this violence exists and just has this ability to just come in to your life, whether or not you, you uh, ask for it or do anything to deserve it, quote unquote, you know, and I think that is such a dark uh, thing. It's such a poisonous thing. Yeah, I think it's just he- hellish to do that. It's just be good to each other. All right, uh, fuck. All right, on the same heels of that early exposure, that's the last thing they said in here, that the risk of violence rises with exposure to aggressive family fights during childhood, physical abuse by a parent, or having a parent with a criminal record. Okay? So keep these facts in your back pocket, things to watch out for, and reasons to just control your own self. If you ever are feeling fucking wild, just know it's it's contagious. It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing to be violent with people, to to do that. Uh, okay, sorry, I'm getting a little off sack here. Um, great. Uh, I thought about stopping here, okay? Um, I think so far this is a pretty uh, good discussion. You know, we could just stop the episode here. We could stop at video games and call it a day. I think I've given you a good amount of ammo. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, to use in your uh, rhetorical hundred round drums. In case you need to talk down uh, someone screaming about mental illness being the cause of all this stuff. All right. But listen, it's called my good bad brain. And in my good bad brain, well, hey, I want to get Freudian, baby. I want to I want to get into some dark shit. I want to get into some psychosexual nuttiness, okay? Because I do not think the answer is as clean as just ban guns because there are a lot of them here already. And because, frankly, uh, I have shot a lot of guns. I even own a gun, technically. Uh, it's a long story. We'll tell it some other time. And I have never once considered for even a split second using it on a person, even on myself. Uh, if I'm being totally honest, I've thought about hurting myself in other ways and I've exhibited what are called, um, quote, risk-seeking behaviors uh, through some of my illnesses. But something about the gun, I uh, I don't know. I There's some boundary there. I, I, I It just, it's something about me knows, like, don't, don't be near, it's not for that in my mind. I, I can't explain it, even though it's literally what it's for. I mean, it's a very dark object that is also very beautiful to me. And on that extremely red flag admission, okay? I mean, don't worry. I'm going to reveal more of my true gun nerdery and general enthusiasm for violence, uh, you know, which is a a funny fucking thing to say. But, you know, the same words mean a lot of different things in language. That's what makes it fun. Poems. Um, Yeah, that that thing, these things that I say, yeah, they'll concern some folks uh, the same way, I don't know, maybe like um, a a woman who likes sex might have done for the Victorians. Okay, I'm going to come back around to that. That'll make sense, maybe. Look, I'm just going to let my conversation here with Nick get weirder and darker and enter 
into more complicated and adult, maybe even mature territory when it comes to addressing psychological cause and effect related to guns and gun violence. Okay, now take it away, Jarrett, you fucking maniac. I have shot guns my whole life. I've I've uh, been attracted to weapons my whole life, I guess. And there is a feeling of like when you hold a weapon, this like desire to use it. Uh, not necessarily on people, but you know, you get a you get a you get an axe. You want to go hack something with it. You get a gun. You want to pull that trigger and and see what it does. And um, I, I don't know. Is there any is there any connection between? Like, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like. People always say, like, it's the person making the decision. The gun is just a tool. But I think a dark, dirty secret no one will talk about ever, uh, even of people who enjoy firearms and know how to use them responsibly, is that there is some dark whisper of the item that's like, I'm made to kill things. Maybe we should kill something. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that certainly seems plausible to me. I mean, I think well-designed objects are a pleasure to use and make you want to use them. You know, yeah. that's what, that's a comp, any designer will tell you that. Yeah. So that is a component of a well-designed object. Uh, so yeah, I mean, gun manufacturers and, you know, I own firearms and I like them too. And I would be like first in line uh, to sign up for more stringent gun rules. Um, right. But yeah, any gun designer, no gun designer sets out to design a gun that people don't want to use. <laughs> I mean, that's right. that's not what they do, you know. So, I, but I mean, and it is. I will say, I think even even as someone, you know, I, I have no interest in hurting anybody. There's there's something about these you know, military style firearms, quote unquote, these sporting rifles that are more yeah. attractive. I think. I mean, it gets into a matter of aesthetic. Maybe you're in a cowboy shit or something, but. You know right. what I mean? That seemed more attractive than just like the old revolver or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I also think there you can't divorce it from the the sensation of power people must have. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have one of those, but the sensation. I mean, when you ha- like this, that's very funny. That's that sounds very funny, by the way. I'm totally normal. I'm totally normal. <laughs> I mean, to to have a, a battle rifle with a hundred round drum magazine. Oh, sorry, sorry. You meant the rifle. <laughs> I thought you meant like the complex. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I hope not too. <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> no, like, I mean, you're like, I mean, it's undeniable people uh, feel power while they hold on. I don't have other, that. I don't have other that. Other people, other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally other people. No, sorry, but the no, battle no, rifle, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, no, the actual like black rifle. I mean, it's got to make you feel powerful. I mean, the, the potential to kill makes people feel powerful any and and anyone who like I, I think people may have a strong reaction to that statement but if they've never been in that position i just don't think they can reflect on it i right. mean anyone who's done martial arts anyone who's done jujitsu and had somebody in a rear naked choke i mean that's a good feeling you know what i yeah. mean on it's a good deep, feeling dark level it definitely is something yeah, you can't deny it, it just is and i think part of the problem is people saying oh it's sick you're sick for saying that, or that's really, that is what gets in the way of people having honest conversations about these problems. That's one of the things. To be clear, to be open on my good, bad brain about my good, bad brain. 
I love jujitsu. I love successfully tapping a game opponent. I love even being tapped by a game opponent, simulating my own death. I think violence in a healthy, trusting, boundaried, safe, respectful, and consensual setting is fun. It's fun as fuck. And, quote, it's sick, and I'm sick for saying it. Okay? Back to Dr. Nick helping us Americans get honest about the dark urges satisfied by extremely dangerous objects designed for literally only one thing. Shooting 30 to 50 feral hogs who come into your yard within three to five minutes of my small kids playing. So I think we need to be really honest about that. I think part of the reason people like having those things is because they know they could really fuck shit up with them if they had to. Yeah, I I think there, there to me there is some strange intertwining with like... I just think of like the Catholic church and this idea of like this purity, this like family values thing. Oh, they're the church. They're pure. They're clean. That's good family values. You don't swear there and stuff like that. That underneath it is of course this like seething, uh, you know, like horrible culture of covering up like real, like sexual abuse and uh, violence and stuff like that. Um, And there's something to me about, like you said, it makes people uncomfortable to talk about that thing, uh, that there's this weirdness around like family values type, uh, you know, quote unquote culture around f- people who are pro firearm. Um, that is, it, it's very strange to me to, to, to act like, I don't think it's even, I think it's honestly, I think it's not even crazy to like let young people interact with firearms in, in, a, you know, safe ways and to do that. Hmm. Really? Really, Jarrett? Do do you think that? All right. I must decide here again. I must. Because I thought about this a lot since I said it as, uh, I mean, as good, generally open-minded and non-prudish modern folks, we've done a lot to remove the pathologizing of sexuality from our culture. No kink shaming and whatnot. A broad acceptance for all manner of sexual acts and preferences once considered deviant. However, I do believe as a culture we have done nothing like this for violence. It is still expressed broadly, this attraction of violence, in the most vulgar and unnuanced ways, accepted as a boys-will-be-boys type thing without being discussed or contextualized into why we might like a thing and how we could express it healthfully. As our society teaches people, and especially young men, that it is not okay to blame your sexual urges for transgressions of any kind which breach the individual sovereignty of other human beings, as we continue to dissect our desires and impulses sexually and learn how to appropriately boundary and express them so that they do not fester into pathology, I think we could do to have a similar interaction with violence. By putting the attraction of violence to weapons and fighting, to war and combat, into dark and unspoken closets of taboo and disgust, I believe we exoticize them. I believe that the people interested in these things simply hide their interests and even attempt to suppress them in ways that have a similar effect to the repression of personal sexual expressions. I think it makes you weirder and sadder, and I truly believe more dangerous. Because... You don't know what your fight or flight feels like. You don't know how victory and defeat feels in this context. And so you tie your ego into it, into these deep and significant ways that 
I don't believe they deserve to be. Like, I think the lack of familiarity with your flight or flight, fight or flight, I think it makes you escalate situations that don't have to be escalated. The same way, like, a man who feels uncomfortable with his sexuality seems to project it onto the whole world in truly destructive ways. I think our disconnection from violence and truly our ability to honor it and express it in healthy ways is part of our entire violence economy thriving. From gun fetishization to just bleed UFC casuals to police who don't know how to grapple so they shoot people in the back or who don't know how to interact with their own sense of fear and power and physical conflict so they slam children on the ground because their egos are broken to a military industrial complex which demands $693 billion in U.S. military budget and says we can't afford health care or housing for the homeless or public university educations for everyone who wants one. Ugh. I think truly, like all politics and culture, it's all rooted in some psychosexual nonsense. Like sex and violence, love and death, Eros and Thanatos, you know? Anyway, my point is, I don't think it's not weird to let kids casually and good, clean, fun shoot guns as five-year-olds. Just like I think it would be fucking weird to introduce a five-year-old to vibrators and dildos. But also, when a kid feels like making a stick a gun or looking at books and websites about guns, I I don't think it's going to help in the long run to make them feel like a, a fucking psycho any more than shaming them about curiosity related to the birds and the bees and the way the birds and the bees sometimes find out their bodies can make them feel like really fucking good, you know? That that was the whole thing earlier about the, you know, do you, I don't know if the reference earlier about the Victorian, you know what I mean? The shaming of how I like violence is maybe like a Victorian lady liking sex, you know what I mean? That was, it was I planted a seed, I don't know, all right. Here we go. Back to Nick and I, you know, back to our our weird fucking relationship with guns and a sideways slide into cowboy fantasies, good guy with the gun mythology and some gun violence nerdery on a tactical level about why concealed carry isn't even a real practical solution to mass shooters, which please feel free to utilize to actually confound your pro-gun relatives, especially if they're the type who don't ever put their bodies in adrenalized situations and enjoy carrying assault rifles into their local chilies because like the tree of liberty needs to be watered with fucking awesome blossom sauce or some shit think it's like really fucking wild to act like it's just good clean fun that has no that's just like good old you know it's uh, bizarre yeah it's a bizarre 1984 double think to to be like you know no guns have nothing to do with killing people we love we love it's just good wholesome enjoyable family fun but if you come on my property i'm gonna fucking kill you you know what i mean there's (laughs) like this weird weird 1984 double think about it yeah um yeah Yeah. i know yeah yeah, because i I, there's got to be like especially in the age of like big data it seems to me i mean it would be invasive as fuck and now i'm really sounding like the 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 terrible authoritarian type of socialist i guess but there's like so you'd think there'd be a way that like if you wanted to buy a gun or a type of gun that you could be like, well, which guns are the ones being used to do this stuff? And then, yeah. uh, and that those seem to appeal to a certain 
mentality uh and not and there are countless people who do it safely so it might not be that person but does that person's cell phone also visit certain ip addresses <laughs> and you know do, right. you know that's i that sounds very invasive and obviously i'm not a libertarian but um you know there's kind of it seems like if people were allowed to research some of this stuff you could kind of like figure out if my phone can fucking predict and listen to you know, the kind of products it thinks I'm going to like, it seems like you could start to figure out who, who are people to be worried about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing is, I think is that, you know, even now most gun crimes are committed with handguns. So there is, you know, there's that kind of issue, but you know, it's hard to kill. It's hard to fire. I don't know how many rounds this guy fired, but he, he killed nine people, right. In 30 seconds. I mean, I think that's pretty hard for someone without a lot of training with a handgun, you know, I, I will say I just, I was thinking about doing even like a little video animation thing. of just like an armchair quarterback about some of the ideas about good guy with a gun stuff. Um, because I also love the, the samurai vision of oneself. I love, I love the Quentin Tarantino movie. I love the fantasy of a cowboy who, is yeah. that that being real? I love the idea that that be that that's real. Um, but in real reality, um, that El Paso that that place was full of uh, good guys with guns. Apparently, there were there were several other people there who had guns. Who I read yeah. that one person had their gun out when the cops showed up, and that was very confusing for the cops. Uh, and that also, which is you know that's that's a point that to me is like oh, half and half. There's good there's good points to that and negative yeah. whatever. But the yeah. other ones that seem more pertinent to me about the reality of violence, which I think as um as a jujitsu guy, as a martial artist there, and and realizing how uh really how fucking naive most people are about interpersonal combat, just the, from a practicality aspect, and why certain things can and can't happen, is two things. One that when gunshots start going off. Um, I'm sorry, but even if you have a gun, you're getting out of there. People are just yeah, like getting yeah. the fuck out of there. They're not, they're not, they, they, they talk about that in like heroic soldiers as the people who run towards the violence as that, that's what makes them heroic. That's I not mean, common. Imagine, like, imagine the adrenaline dump that you would experience, you know? No, well, yeah, I completely. Can't. I, I think that the idea that, uh, even 90, like, even like 3% of people would be people who, go towards it, who hear it and go like, I'm going to draw my gun and start engaging. I just don't think that's true. And then I would say second to that, I literally, you know, because again, I'm, I'm a martial artist maniac or whatever, and my YouTube suggestions are what they are. There's this one martial artist guy <laughs> I, I uh, watch a video of, uh, watched a video of, who does, you know, hand-to-hand uh, -hand stuff and knife stuff. He's a former special forces guy, but he also does gun stuff. And the whole video was about like carbine, something with carbine and, and using your sling appropriately. And so you don't get stuck in confined areas. And he makes this point in it where he goes like, because if, uh, if I get my carbine in play and he's got a pistol and he's at 200 yards, he can't even touch me. And right. I'm like all day, you know, right. is like right. also the reality of if I'm if I'm a concealed carry cowboy in a Walgreens, uh, 50 yards is a hard shot to make if you're yes. not really fucking good with a pistol. And yes. if I have a rifle of any kind. You're fucked. Like, good luck yeah. trying to good luck trying to engage me. Not only yeah, for like exactly. how many rounds I have access to, but just sheer accuracy. Yeah, right. I mean, that 
Right. That's the other thing that people don't talk. I mean, you know, look, this, this well, that's, I feel like are, that's very inside baseball. That's very like, how would you like put that on CNN or something like that and be like, Hey, let's explain aspects of why that's crazy. Um, it's true though. I, I mean, you know, the statistics there are pretty clear. Like if you have a gun in your house, I think they're, um, less clear, you know, for concealed carry because, you know, people don't, we don't know who in a lot of States who's concealed carrying. Um, but you're much more likely to shoot someone you know or have a family member shoot another family member than you are to shoot an intruder. I mean, right. that's, you know, and I think if, you know, people like argue those statistics, I think you should just accept that if you're like, I just accept that, you know, like, okay, yeah, if you have something dangerous, it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I feel like even if you had like a, a chainsaw, nobody would disagree with that. You know what I mean? Right. Like if you had a fucking drill in the house, people would be like, well, you're more likely to have an accident with the drill that hurts you than some some than an intruder. You know what I right. mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's so a little yeah. bit disingenuous. I guess that's a little bit disingenuous. But I think it's a there's some aspects of that comparison that are fair. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's yeah. the, the the mental health part really frustrates me when people say that. I, I think it's just a total cop out. At the same time, that I think there should be more funding and support for mental health services, but I, I think this. You know, trying to figure out the profile of um, uh, people who commit these kinds of crimes. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, it's hard, but is it really that hard? I mean, there seem to be some pretty substantial common elements. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and and if we want to preserve our Second Amendment freedoms, it might mean that we're going to have to start tightening up some other freedoms, you know, or perhaps we could just restrict those second amendment freedoms a little more and then people can go on whatever fucking website they want. You know, you kind of have to pick your poison, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, personally, I think everyone would be happier, uh, with the one, I mean, I, I think there's so many, I, I mean, it's sheerly practical again, sheerly practical. I'm all for another assault weapon ban. Sure. No problem. But there's yeah. so many just in the country already. There's so many that are yeah, extant. I, I don't um, think it's going to happen. I don't think it'll happen. And I also, even gun lobbyists aside, and even if they did, I don't know that you'd see like, I think it would be since our country has such short election cycles and short like thinking processes, I think you wouldn't see change fast enough that people would link it that, you know, they'd be like still the same. We banned it and it's still the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know when, when the, when the guy on TV says like the guy who doesn't give a fuck about healthcare and doesn't give a fuck about yeah, people yeah. and who does glorify violence and all this shit starts talking about mental health as the thing to blame here. Um, and the thing to, we really got to look at and work on, I feel like that he doesn't mean the same thing that you would mean or that somebody else would. Mean, yeah. It makes me you know? pretty nervous. Um, yeah. You know, I think probably what's going to happen is that the, and I, this is kind of what I've gathered from just listening to the media reports is that, um, you know, the federal response is going to be to fund state initiatives and different states will, uh, you know, they will advance different initiatives and we'll see which ones work better. Um, I think that's my, my hypothesis. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for talking to me. I really, really oh, appreciate yeah. that. I think this, no, this is going to be so helpful to yeah. add into the... Yeah, for sure. Thing. My pleasure. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Sounds Bye. good. Bye. Well, there you go. I mean... 
Yeah, I, I hope this very different episode of My Good Bad Brain has given you enough information to engage in conversations about mental illness as it relates to the awful crisis of mass shootings and gun violence in America. I hope you feel you've gained some useful tools for forming your own thoughts and standing up to some of the more popular and ill-informed rhetorical arguments cited against positive change in this country. You may be more upset now after this discussion of a pretty dark topic. I hope you've turned it off by now if the subject matter has been distressing to you. Like I said in the intro, I um, I think that'd be a good idea. I, like, I, I find knowledge empowering, even if it is dark or bleak knowledge. Something about examining the thing that troubles me or learning the reality of the injustices of the world makes me feel better than ignoring it. Just always has. Sticking my head in the sand is certainly viable and crucial at times as a strategy just to stay sane, but ultimately it creates a feeling for me that I'm willfully choosing to know and do nothing about real and awful issues. I truly believe knowledge is power. I truly believe what G.I. Joe said is true. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. So, yeah, now now you know. Now we know. Knowing is, you know, it's half the battle. <laughs> I, I just, I yeah, I suggest please keep learning, keep knowing, and prepare yourselves to stand up when you can stand up, you know? Speak truth to power. I literally had a sixth grade teacher who had a sign uh, with that in his classroom, Mr. Downey, and it deeply affected me. You know, education matters. Speak the fuck up. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't I don't know what the future holds. I don't know. I know it is scary right now. It's so easy to be very negative, and I recognize that because of my depression brain and also because I'd taken a lot of information probably too much information from the fucking internet from my phone my little anxiety portal and there is a lot of negative reality out there and there is a history of cynical selfish cruel moneyed powers getting their way at the expense of normal people through all of human history and yes it's true that Amnesty International just issued a travel advisory for anyone coming to the US because of the prevalence and incidence of guns and gun violence in this country it feels like it fucking sucks and you know like when your brain is being bad to you the feeling is not necessarily a fact, but the feeling still fucking sucks and does carry its own reality. Okay. All right. Ugh. All right, I'm doing, let's be, yeah, doing a big deep breath. Okay. We're doing a big deep breath here. Listen, about 70% of American voters are women, people of color, and young people ages 18 to 35, and they all want a better future. Even among that 30% of old white guys, I mean, th- there gotta be some good ones. I swear, I met some. I mean, Bernie Sanders, he's one of those, <laughs> you know? At the point I'm trying to make here, at the end here, you know, getting to the end, I swear, is that truly a huge majority of people in this country want everyone to be able to live in a way where we are safer and cared for the way you'd expect people to be in any country, but especially in the richest country on earth. If you listen to this, 
you are likely in the 18 to 35 range, that demographic of people. And you should know, there are at least about 11,000 more of you every day, if we judge by 2010 census numbers. And, and that demographic all wants it to be better and different. Major revolutionary moments almost never have majority support. The civil rights movement didn't. The women's rights movement didn't. But we do. That's insane. I mean, we all want a world which chooses to share resources, to create structures that ensure freedom of expression at every level. That means freedom to live however you wish without fear that you will be homeless when you could have a home, hungry when you could eat, ill when you could be well, or endangered when you could be safe. I believe we will live in a better world and it may get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. So that is my not bullshit, hopefully brighter ending to a pretty dark episode, a pretty dark walk down some unpleasant facts and thoughts and things to think about. Thank you to Dr. Nick, who is amazing. You should follow him on Twitter if you want to, at Dr, just the D-R, Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, Barr, with two R's, B-A-R-R-1 at Dr. Nicholas Barr 1. And if you want to hear a longer talk with him, uh, although judging how far I'm into this, it might not be that much longer. (laughs) Damn, this thing's an hour and a half so far, I think. Um, If you do want to listen to another Good Bad Brain we did together, it's back in episode 33 of us just freewheeling the old style without the research and the scripty kind of vibe. And uh, if you want to listen to another podcast with him, which is actually good and cogent, (laughs) listen to the Ologies episode he did called Traumatology. Um, You know, it's the study of trauma, which is uh, uh, Nick's thing, the study of trauma and its effect on human beings. So that's a very good episode of a very good podcast. You should subscribe and listen to if you don't already. Uh, I actually usually work on it week to week and I'm also quite in love with its host. So full disclosure. Also, if you enjoy uh, this episode or the last one, the dogs one of my good bad brain, please let me know. I like doing these researchy episodes. I think they will likely not be this long, but this was a big topic and I just got really into it. Um, I have ideas to do other mental health fill in the blank stuff, um, like mental health and how it relates to, uh, let's see, I'm interested in the effects of food and dining on, on our mental health and sort of being a person vibe, uh, light and color money. That's a big one. I want to do one about the history of involuntary commitment. Um, as I was researching this one, it just seems uh, very dark, but very interesting to deep dive onto that. Uh, I'd like to do one about pleading insanity. You know, as you know, the idea of insanity as a as a defense or something like that. These all interest me. Uh, they take a little bit of time to do, but they interest me. And if you have any ideas for things that you'd like to hear little deep dives on, uh, similar to these, please let me know. Uh, I am finding doing this version of my good bad brain complicated and more challenging to assemble, but much much more fulfilling than the uh, just hit record and post ones. Um, so I, I I do hope you enjoy them. Um, 
speaking of enjoying, if you dug the podcast, please check out patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. I am definitely quite ADHD and bad at doing a lot of extra content stuff, uh, content, content stuff, but I have really enjoyed putting these shorter, well, not really in this case, but generally um, shorter and more researched and edited episodes together. And the money that comes through Patreon really helps. Um, I want to talk about that really briefly for people who do contribute already to the Patreon. Uh, first of all, thank you. Fucking thank you. Uh, and please be alerted that uh, I'm going to switch the Patreon to a per episode basis instead of the monthly one because I know I've slowed down a lot and it just seems like it makes more sense. Um, I will limit the charges uh, probably to like uh, no more than two a month, I think. Um even though I, you know, I very likely will do more episodes. I, when I'm saying I, I, I really like doing this researchy thing. I don't mean to be dis, uh, discrediting the freewheeling, more diary, whatever ones, because diary or diarrhea, I don't know. Uh, because I do think that those are valuable, um, also for what they are. But just, you know, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't know. I definitely have switched almost every other week on this, and I just want that to be the new understanding i guess that they won't come as often especially if they take more research like this um but yeah i do still plan to do some of those brain breathers the free willing chat ones again i'm going to do some more chats with listeners i love doing that our good bread brain thing i'm just trying to make my life work which i'm not always great at doing adhd <laughs> uh for me is it's you know it's not just a brain uh ish thing but also a spiritual calling you know uh i got a lot of passions i got a lot of pursuits and also bills <laughs> fucking bills so i'm sorry um Anyway, yes, uh, before one, I will announce this again. I'll, I'll announce it on Twitter at Jared Sleeper, J-R-R-E-T-T-S-L-E-E-P-E-R. And on the Patreon again, and on Instagram, probably at Jared underscore Sleeper. Uh, but probably in the next week or so, you know, maybe I'll just wait till next month. I don't know, change it. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch the Patreon to that per episode instead of per month. So feel free to adjust your contribution accordingly. Um, hey, that's it. And, uh, and I thought, fuck it. I love the don't kill yourself list. Let's keep the don't kill yourself list going. So if you kept listening till now, uh, I'm going to add something to the don't kill yourself list. Cause I don't have a guest today. So I'll just do it myself. So for those who don't know, the don't kill yourself list is a list. I started in a very, very dark time in my life to remind me of things that make living really fucking very cool and good. And they're usually accessible, often material and to my subjective experience, objectively wonderful. So today I am adding to the don't kill yourself list, uh, Therabands CLX rubber bands, which might sound really funny. Um, they're these like rubber bandy things I learned about in physical therapy for my shoulder. Uh, the CL I think stands for consecutive loops and it's like these two thin but very strong rubber bands glued together back to back but like with openings all along and at regular intervals that you can just use as handles or you can just like kind of loop it over your foot or wrist or palm and use the rubber bands just kind of play and get creative with movements to work small muscles in your back and shoulders and hips or big muscles in your legs or I've been doing kind of like spinning and punching movements with it like mule kicks and stuff it's just like just very clever invention that uh i don't know i just i I just to get your blood pumping through your muscles and at these odd angles and in these organic patterns and i feel like they just encourage me to play and experiment and 
they've really been helping my shoulders get stronger and less painful from the injuries I've had. They're only about like 15 bucks each and they're keeping me out of surgery. So thank you, TheraBand, uh, for your CLX line. Uh, they're not a sponsor, truly, just <laughs> on the don't kill yourself list. I promise I will never sell don't kill yourself list spots unless it's something that I actually think belongs there. In which case, yeah, I'm fucking, I'll sell the shit out of that spot. <sighs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of my good, bad brain. Please be well, self care, hydrate. Uh, My Good Bad Brain is a production of MindJam Media. And uh, hey, thank you to Coda, who makes beautiful music, for making this theme song with me. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.